This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Turismo de Lisboa. The Iberian Peninsula offers some of the best birding in Europe, and Lisbon, Portugal is an excellent gateway to it all. Located at the mouth of the Tagus River with exceptional birding just a short distance away, Lisbon is a paradise for migratory waterbirds with wintering flamingos, storks, raptors, and more. And it's one of the most affordable cities in Europe. For more information on what you can expect from Portugal's capital, be it cultural or birding highlights, go to visit Lisbon. Boa.com. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. About a month ago, you may remember, I talked a little bit about the duck stamp, specifically new rules that may or may not be coming down the pike with regards to what has to be included in the duck stamp art. I want to talk a little bit today about the new duck stamp that was just announced. This will be the 2020 stamp. But don't worry, this isn't going to become a duck stamp exclusive podcast. If this is something that really interests you, you can check out my other podcast, the Philately Forum. A lot of, a lot of stamp talk there. So anyway, the, the winner of the duck stamp contest was announced last week. If you're not familiar with the process, it is a big thing with wildlife artists. They submit their designs based on a handful of uh, species that are chosen each year to be the the subject species, and there's a winner awarded. That design becomes the duck stamp for the following year. It is sort of a, a shockingly huge deal, and there is a whole duck stamp culture that is built up around it. Uh, there was a documentary made a couple years ago about it called The Million Dollar Duck, if you're interested. It's, it's sort of a fascinating thing, but I'm not going to go into that. Anyway, the, the last couple years, in my opinion, have kind of missed the mark a little bit. 2018's duck stamp was a mallard, mallard with all the species of amazing North American waterfowl out there. You, you, you might as well paint one of those you know, misfit park ducks with the jacked up wings and the little poof on their head. And that was the year that the harlequin duck was another one of the species on the list, and, and they still go with mallard. Yeah, I'm sorry. This is like two years ago, and I'm, I thought I'd be able to let this go, but evidently not. Uh, last year's winner, and the current stamp is a wood duck, which is nice, but it's got this kind of ugly decoy behind it. I'm I'm not a fan. But this year, or rather next year, I think they will have made up for those those missteps. The winning painting was a flock of black-bellied whistling ducks. It's very nicely done. I mean, it's just a really nice species, a kind of a funky shaped bird. Uh, in, the, in the stamp image, there's a trio of flying whistling ducks in the background. It's got that really cool white stripe in the wing. I love that thing. Anyway, this is a really nice one. It's a species that birders all over the continent, at least, you know, the eastern two thirds of the continent are increasingly familiar with. So that's nice too. So nice job, judges. I don't entirely forgive you for the mallard year, but this is definitely a step in the right direction. On the show today, I have dedicated the entire episode to a conversation I had about the 3 billion birds report. You've probably seen it. The study in the journal Science that found that the U.S. and Canada have lost 3 billion nesting birds in the last 40 years. It sent shockwaves through the birding community and even the general public. Birding editor Ted Floyd and American Bird Conservancy's Jordan Rudder join me to talk about what it means and what you can do about it. All that after this week's Rare Birds. 
This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of September, very beginning of October 2019. We led with Alaska last time. I'm going to lead with Alaska again this time. Uh, the Bering Sea outposts of St. Paul and the Pribilofs and Gamble on St. Lawrence Island continue to produce good birds. St. Paul had jack snipe and Siberian ruby throat in the last week, and Gamble has had multiple little buntings and the ABA's sixth record of tree pipit in the last couple weeks. We have three first records to report, one comes from Illinois again. This is their third of the fall, and yes, I consider August the fall, so I can include that little stint they had back then. This time, it is a Cassin's Kingbird at the migration hotspot that is Montrose Beach in the city of Chicago. These Tyrannus flycatchers are pretty common as vagrants, western and tropical kingbird especially, but fork-tailed and scissor-tailed flycatcher as well. But Cassin's Kingbird does not have just a huge track record as a vagrant, I, I suspect that it's because its migration is not as long distance as the others I mentioned. So when it does get around like these birds do, it doesn't go as far. Uh, it's a short to middle distance migrant, but that just makes it a more noteworthy find and a, a testament to the strange vagrant magnetism of Montrose and Illinois' good rarity luck lately. The next two firsts are also oddly named after 19th century ornithologist John Casson, who's apparently having a moment. A Casson sparrow was found in Rockingham County, New Hampshire this week, and also Minnesota had its first Casson sparrow within about a day of that New Hampshire bird, this one in Lake County. This species is prone to vagrancy in bunches. I recall back in 2011, following a big drought winter in the West. Several states had Cass and Sparrow just show up one after another the next spring. I think these Western species that are prone to wandering in search of resources in normal years are especially susceptible to a sort of eruptive phenomenon. So keep an eye out for big, fat, weird-looking sparrows. Speaking of long-distance migrants, though, this past week has seen a trio of northern weed ears discovered in the lower 48. The first turned up in Wright County, Minnesota, Minnesota again, where it was the state's second record. That was followed a couple days later by a weed ear near Victoria, Texas, which was that state's third, and then one in Northampton County, Virginia, which was Virginia's fourth. There is almost certainly more weed ears hanging around somewhere. Very cool thing about northern weed ears, which is a you know quite common old world species that actually breeds in North America, in Alaska and Northwest Canada, and then in none of it. So you know the farthest northwest and the farthest northeast parts of the continent, but they don't winter in the Americas. Both populations actually winter at the same places in sub-Saharan Africa, but they take different routes to get there with the Northwest breeding birds. They cross the whole of Asia from, you know, Bering Sea to the Arabian Peninsula, and then the Northeast breeding birds crossing the North Atlantic and all of Europe. It's, it's crazy. So if you imagine kind of misdirected migrants that are kind of 90 degrees off, they're heading south into North America, and they could be anywhere, which is sort of what we see when we look at the records. They, they show up all over the place. 
And hot off the presses, like just across my computer as I'm preparing to record, I see bird banders from the Rocky Point Bird Observatory near Victoria, British Columbia. They netted a brown shrike, which is BC's first record and Canada's second. So a lot of Asian birds moving right now in addition to our expected North American migrants. This is a longer than normal foray into the rare bird reports the last couple weeks. It's It's been a fortnight, y'all. Uh, for all the rarities you can handle, go to the ABA blog, blog.aba.org, every Friday morning. You can also check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That is at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. Or you can follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Three billion breeding birds lost in the last 40 years in the U.S. and Canada. They are sobering numbers, to be sure. That was the conclusion of a paper published recently in the journal Science in the core of the 2019 State of the Bird Report, published recently. Uh, This report, spearheaded by American Bird Conservancy, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, Canadian Wildlife Service, and others, certainly made waves in the general public as much as the birding community. We're going to talk a little bit about that, especially with regards to getting this information into the world where people are liable to do something about it. I am joined by Jordan Rutter. She is the Director of Public Relations at the American Bird Conservancy. And of course, podcast stalwart, birding editor, Ted Floyd. Welcome to both of you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for having us. So I want to ask off the top, you know, what was your sort of initial reaction to this report? Because mine was uh, you know, 30%. That that seems about right based on my own experience and, and, you know, the experiences of those that have been relayed to me by people who have been birding longer than I have. Maybe, maybe I'm just overly cynical about that. But but what did you think? Did this feel commensurate with your own experiences as a birder? I think that there was a lot of shock because all of a sudden we were putting numbers to the things that birders, including myself, a lifelong birder, have actually experienced, right? So that yeah. that information and having a number is really powerful And so I think that's more so where I'm coming at it from. I know for others and even myself, but speaking for the actual co-authors that I've been working with, the shock also came from the breakdown of the actual declines, looking at the fact that, you know, abundant birds, these backyard feeder birds are the ones that are really declining, which are a lot harder to observe than say, for myself, I've noticed in my own lifetime red knots declining. It's it's mm. a very special thing when I go to the Delaware Bay now and I see red knots because there aren't as many as when I was a kid. So it's understanding the ratio, I think, and then again the the number, um, both individually and overall. I mean, three billion. Yeah. I can't even conceptualize that. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, it says one thing about the abundance of birds on the continent as a whole that, you know, 3 billion, which is like just a huge number could be lost and it's only 30%. But yeah. And and as you say, it, it, the types of birds matter because it's one thing to say something like, Oh, I don't know. Bobolink is declining because that's something that we as birders have thought about for a long time. And another thing to say that, you know, ruddy turnstone, a very familiar bird to a lot of people who live near the shore is declining as well. That is a that is a little bit more a little more of a blow. Like Jordan, I was most struck by the quantitative aspect of this report. The uh, the more qualitative result, namely that bird populations are declining, uh, didn't come as news or really even much of a shock. I'm sad to say uh, to me, but getting the uh, the breakdown uh, and and a number, I think, is really 
powerful, certainly for as long as I've been a birder, indeed, as long as I've been alive, I think that the, um, the decline of, birding, uh, of bird populations has been sort of drummed into the, the brains of birders. When I was a, a college student, John Turborg's book, Where Have All the Birds Gone? I think that came out in 1989, certainly sounded the alarm. And it's a great book, and I don't mean to, uh, to diss the book in, in, in any way, but it, it did speak sort of qualitatively um, about declines. And again, yep, I think Turborg was and still is a, a pioneer uh, in this sort of work. But just, just as the both of you said, getting um, numbers uh, really makes it more uh, sort of visceral in a way, I think, than just sort of a, a vague idea of declining populations. Yeah. And it's also sort of hard to get our heads around these numbers too. When you think about, you know, when we go out birding, we're only seeing a relatively small, we're rarely scratching the surface of the birds that are present in any given area. And we sort of understand that. But to know that like in the background, these numbers are going down uh, is something that, I, you know, I said sobering, it's sobering for sure. The other problem too, is that so many of those declines are happening um, away from our, our prying eyes, you know, mm-hmm. even in our biggest cities, uh, populations of uh, more adaptable birds, birds that are sort of more, um, you know, um, accepting of, uh, of, of a broad array of habitats are, are increasing. So we can look at increasing populations of, uh, well, collared doves, for example, but in, in my neck of the woods, uh, uh, bush tits and, and scrub jays and uh, some of the hummingbirds. Those are the ones we see. So, 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 so they kind of give us this false sense of assurance. And then the ones that are just sort of out there in prairies and woods and maybe out at, you know, out at sea, um, just kind of uh, decline without our realizing it. So have, having these numbers really, I think, as I said, brings the point home. Yeah. And it is just mind blowing, though, when we, again, focus on the fact that abundant birds and these common birds that, that everyone, even non-birders, could possibly name simply because of exposure um, or, or individual experiences, you know, dark-eyed juncos, like to actually be able to say dark-eyed juncos have lost millions of individuals is just so hard to comprehend because they're, to me, in, in Washington, D.C., they're a sign of winter coming, right? That's the mm-hmm. one of the first birds that is coming and you're like, okay, this is the onset. And to recognize, oh my gosh, there's fewer of them out there is, again, just hard to comprehend. How do you put that on a continental, um, you know, coast to coast U.S. and Canada scale? And that's where this paper is really helpful. Yeah. And, and I think another thing that is really interesting is that it, it does sort of go into the, the, the importance of, um, of habitat when we're talking about declines of these bird populations. Because a lot of these birds that are going down, it, it, is, it is losing their habitat that is sort of driving this decline. Um, when we're thinking about on the hierarchy of environmental issues, you know, climate change certainly is the one that sucks all the air out of the room. But it's also so important for us to realize that there are these all little other issues that we need to deal with that are informing these these declines. Absolutely. And I think that's where understanding that it's going to take folks being engaged at all levels, both personal all the way up to societal, and then having that constant engagement and rallying as a group is going to really make a difference. Let, let me address this habitat issue. Uh, and I was actually um, surprised when I heard the media coverage the day of the report. I think mm-hmm. it was the Thursday before the climate strike. I don't know why yeah. I remember that, but that, that's when it came out. And the 
the matter of habitat was um, really emphasized by several experts. I, I remember, for example, hearing uh, Ken Rosenberg on uh, NPR. Ken Rosenberg, would, the author of this, one of the one of the authors. Yeah, I'm sorry, correct, yeah. the, the, the lead author. Just putting it in context. We're talking about, I understand. <laughs> um, I actually thought that there was going to be more of an emphasis on, on climate change and was uh, interested in the emphasis, indeed, on habitat. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jordan mentioned uh, doing things sort of from individual levels right on up to societal levels, and I, I absolutely uh, understand where that's coming from. I, I, I want to make a plug, though, for doing things at societal levels. You know, right now we're hearing about this massive destruction uh, by burning of the mm-hmm. rainforest, uh, especially in Brazil. And no matter how many milkweeds I plant for my monarchs, or no matter how much xeriscaping I do in my yard for uh, burdens and bush tits, actually, I don't have burdens here, but bush tits and scrub jays, you know, that is not going to affect habitat destruction in the Amazon. And by the way, that habitat destruction has climate consequences as mm-hmm. well. So really uh, interesting and, and gratifying to hear the emphasis on on habitat. I just also want to you know, point out that habitat is bigger than the park down my street or um, the, the milkweeds in my front yard. It, it's a global issue. I think it's about, though, folks taking action however they're comfortable. And there's a spectrum of activities that will actually make a difference. And that spectrum is anything from in your own home or backyard to things on a societal level. There are anything from things that don't cost any money to things that take a lot of money. There are things that are applicable to five-year-olds or 85-year-olds. And so I think it really is just remembering that as long as you're doing something and contributing and telling your friend so that we have a positive domino effect, that's where the bird conservation movement is going to strengthen and then continue. Yeah. And, you know, to me, this report felt specifically tailored to reach out to the general public as opposed to the the birding and nature community, um, which I suppose is is probably at least partly your doing, Jordan, <laughs> since the American Bird Conservancy is sort of run point on this. Um, I, I was super impressed to see how many general interest news organizations uh, ran with it. That must be really gratifying to see this stuff that we birders have sort of been beating the drum about for so long, to see it get out into a place where, where people who are sort of bird friendly or bird adjacent uh, can see it as well. Absolutely. And it's going to take all of us. Um, not to be a little tacky, but there is no I in conserve. So it's, you know, we, we have, the, nice. <laughs> we have the base of <laughs> birders and not to assume anything, but I think, you know, we're relying on them. We've been relying on birders to take action. And mm. now it's about, again, that positive domino effect of bringing other folks into the fold and realizing that birds are indicator species from a biological standpoint, but they're also a indicator species for the world. And so even if you're not a bird enthusiast, birds still affect you in some capacity, even if it's this rallying call to take action and help the world. This is a little bit um, maybe uh, outside my zone of authority here because Nate's supposed to be asking the question. <laughs> no, please. And, and the, well, the question really isn't intended for either of, of you two, but sort of just for the, the broader community. And, and that's the question of whether there really is this um, lack of awareness, let's say, in the United States and Canada by just, you know, the general populace about declining bird populations. I, you know, I've been a birder my, pretty much my whole life and aware of declining birds ever since my earliest encounters with Rachel Carson, which would have been when I was a school kid in the 1970s. I guess I've, I'm guilty of just assuming that 
a general decline in bird populations, never mind the exact numbers or the breakdown of species or anything like that, but is sort of out there in the same way that most humans know that, I don't know, the human population is increasing. I, I actually, I guess I'm guilty these past 40 some years of thinking that um, most people in the United States and Canada realize that birds are declining. And maybe what you all are saying is that's not the case. My sense is that it's just not on people's radar for the most part. You know, we we know it because, you know, birds are, are what we do. We are like swimming in a soup of birds so 24 hours a day. But for the for the general public, for the people that I interact with, you know, on a regular basis through my kids sports teams or through our local local temple, like I, I just do not think that that is the kind of thing that they consider. I mean, if they sat down and thought about it, they would probably realize, yeah, you know, bird populations are probably declining. It feels in, in part and parcel with what we're hearing about everything else in the environmental news, but it's just not a, it's just not a thing that you think about. Whereas we think about it all the time. Yeah. To back <laughs> you up, I think it's about taking even a second, right? In our fast paced yeah. world, let alone all of the news happening, all of the current events, you know, just to take one single second to actually pause and think about bird declines, especially as a non-bird person, I think is just not happening frequently enough. And that's where I think we really need to use this news to tell our friends and tell others, because all of a sudden it, it hopefully is just, just one second. That's all I'm asking so that we can hopefully mm -hmm. then shift the conversation either to answering questions they might raise or focusing on the fact that we do have success stories and that those success mm -hmm. stories, everyone that's a bird person knows about waterfowl, is because of the prioritization and putting our money where our mouth is and getting that, again, societal support for bringing back the birds. Yeah. And, and you know, I think birds are sort of a perfect messenger for this sort of thing, too, because even if you're not a birder like we are, people put out feeders. You know, people are aware of the birds that that are around them they like walking through their neighborhood in the evening with their dog maybe and listening to birds singing i mean that's something that they are sort of aware of even if they're not focusing on that and i think the news that you know bird populations are declining and that birds might not be coming to feeders as often as they did in the past or you might lose some of that bird song that you enjoy on a on a spring evening uh, i think is something that has the potential to really resonate and i can tell you that that's a fact from all of the inquiries whether it's phone calls or emails or mm -hmm. Facebook messages or other social media comments that at least for American Bird Conservancy we're experiencing where folks, again, whether they're regular followers of us or new, are saying, oh my gosh, all of a sudden I'm recognizing, you know, I, I'm not hearing the bird songs anymore or I'm not mm -hmm. seeing those birds at my grandma's feeder as much or whatever their connection and entry point to the bird world is. It, it's been really fascinating and, and supporting, almost motivating for me working on this yeah. to actually have that um, widespread affirmation of what we're, what yeah. we're sharing. Speaking of sharing, it's and, uh, you guys have sort of induced this like a micro existential crisis for me, but <laughs> I'm only partially joking. You know, I, I, like the two of you, I'm, I'm sort of a, a bird ambassador. I'm, I'm out there quite a bit engaging with um actually not really, you know, sophisticated birders like the two of you, but just generally interested people. And I do find myself almost always 
sort of talking up the the abundance of birds, the proliferation mm-hmm. of birds. You know, yeah. if I'm doing a, a bird oh, walk. everywhere. It's <laughs> birding such a great exactly. hobby because there's so much diversity and variety. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm thinking of actually some events I've done just, just locally here in my my, uh, my hometown in, in Colorado. And, you know, I, I never would get up on a soapbox and say, well, we're going to go to a park that doesn't have many birds anymore. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, 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 what, what, what a killjoy. But but I, I, I feel that... Um, you should have seen it 40 years ago. Right, well, yeah, and, and that, that's when you actually do hear from time to time in the older age. Yet I probably fall into that trap on occasion, but um, I was having a really uh, intriguing conversation a little while ago with uh, with Van Remsen, a noted ornithologist in uh, Louisiana, about uh, how almost all of our survey methods tend to um, overrepresent bird populations because we tend hmm. to go to where the birds are, and that's that's a very natural thing to do. We also tend to you yeah. know go to where the the best food is or where the best um, entertainment right. is, and um, you know what if we in fact did you know a lot more of our birding in parking lots and schoolyards and vacant lots and and the like, and that, that became a much more sort of a quantitative and statistical question. But yeah, I, I, I said I sort of joking about a micro existential crisis here of mine, but I, I find in sort of reflecting on things now that I, I rarely in a, in a public setting, you know, take the time out to say that, sure, we're seeing lots of beautiful, cool and glorious, wonderful birds, but, um, you know, things aren't all well either. And maybe that should be part of our messaging. Yeah. Isn't that sort of the idea about the, the breeding bird survey though, that you are doing these sort of long-term, you know, studies, uh, over, uh, uh, you know, multiple years and places that are kind of changing, becoming more developed. I do a couple of breeding bird surveys here in my part of North Carolina. And I can tell you that like, I noticed the encroachment of development every single year, whether or not the numbers are changing or not. It's, it's hard to say from year to year, but um, yeah, I mean, I can, I can tell that there is less good habitat than there used to be. Yeah. The breeding bird survey is an excellent example, sort of a foil to what I was just saying, because just, as, <laughs> well, no, no, just, just for the, the more general audience here, you know, that, no, but I appreciate that. The, the, the thing that's so wonderful about the breeding bird survey, and really I would say about the Christmas bird count too, is that um, yeah, yeah. You, you can't fool around with your location from year to year. Right. Um, you, yeah. You're just, you're going to the same place over and over again. You can sort of tweak your, uh, um, uh, emphasis and intensity, Timing. quite yeah. for, especially yeah. in the Christmas count. But um, yeah. yeah, on the uh, on the breeding bird survey, let's just say that the, you know the grasshopper sparrows aren't singing along the uh, the road anymore. It's the issue yeah. I had this very year, oh, is that right? That's the place the, that I always got grasshopper sparrows <laughs> did not have grasshopper <laughs> grasshopper sparrows this year, so, and I was a little, I was like, oh, yeah. but, but 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 you can't, for example, you know, just tweak the uh, the route by five miles or even a fifth of a mile no. or something like that. You, right. you have to keep doing yeah. the same route that was done since 1967 or 1968 or whenever it was initiated. Yeah. So there's two points that I want to raise, and this is whether it's for just us or whatever. One is, I will say, though, that the, the one criticism that I, I would have said personally, but also raised by this paper, is that the breeding bird survey doesn't adequately uh, survey the boreal forest, which is, is just inaccessible and huge magnitude of, of land. So there is that one aspect where, you know, hard to get to areas and accessible areas are something that we need to start thinking about. How do we survey them moving forward just with development or, or how do we preserve them, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is I, I do just want to give a huge shout out in whatever capacity I can to citizen science yeah. because this paper and so many other 
papers and conservation uh, projects are because of citizen science. I mean, just think of the scale that we're talking about, the, the geographic and time scale. And that's because of birders that we have been able to move forward because otherwise there's no way one person or one science project or um, anything like that could have possibly gathered all of this information that is truly valuable. So um, just showing that that appreciation and, and recognition for these uh, vetted science, citizen science projects and, and their importance. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly think I often have, um, when I've kind of thought about this and talk about, you know, citizen science, community science, whatever you want to call it, I've often described birders as, as witnesses. Like we are the witnesses to these declines. We are the people that are that need to be able to to raise the alarm because we are the ones that are out there seeing it in real time. And um, yeah, as you say, you know, people who are willing to do that sort of work, and even if it's incentivized like Ebert is, um, that's still great, great work that needs to be done. Hey, just a real quick uh, point of clarification. I don't assume that everybody would know this, but uh, sort of uniting uh, um, Jordan's two remarks from a moment ago about the Breeding Bird Survey and about citizen science. I just want to quickly point out, and we're in the business of doing shout outs here, that the <laughs> Breeding Bird Survey is done almost entirely by citizen scientists. It's, it's a very mm. uh, sort of a statistically sophisticated survey with some, um, you know, I know some really sort of heavy hitting number crunching but uh, with few exceptions, the folks who do the breeding bird survey are just ordinary birders uh, contributing to a really valuable long-term ecological data set. Yeah. And as, as a birder, I, I do three routes uh, every year and I, I keep like adding empty routes that are sort of within reasonable driving distance mm. to my house just because I enjoy it so much. It is, it is really a gratifying project yep. to be involved with, um, to you know go to these same places every single year at approximately the same time and, and do this survey. It's not as difficult as you think. And if you are, you want to go to Patuxet's website and look and see if there are any empty uh, breeding bird survey routes around you, if you're listening, definitely, I would encourage you to do that. You don't need to be a super, super, super skilled birder. You just need to be familiar with the stuff that is generally around you in the summer. And I think a lot of us are, and it's, um, yeah, it's great. It's great. And I think that shows, you know, this is another aspect where you don't have to have a huge change in your lifestyle mm -hmm. or behavior, but can still make a positive difference, right? So you're already birding. Just make sure that the the birds that you're seeing, the information you're collecting is then shared so that it can go on to make a huge impact and, and rally other people to get involved or help make positive change. I mean, you know, even if you don't want to sign up for the commitment of a breeding bird survey route, you know, there's also breeding bird mm -hmm. atlases. There's just regular eBirds. So there's lots of entry points and it's just finding what works for you. Yeah. And, and one of the things I wanted to talk about was that well, one of the wonderful things about this science art, science paper is that it did give some very, you know, pragmatic ways to go about addressing this change. And I, and I do want to, you know, say that I think of these things, it's really important to get these out in the general public because I do think birders do a lot of this, even if it's like keeping your cat indoors, if it's drinking bird friendly coffee, if it's, if it's, um, what was a couple of the other, you know, making sure that your windows are treated properly to prevent bird strikes. These are all like, these are all acts that make a difference. They can make a difference. And, and I, I think it's really great to get those out there into the general public. So people can say, look, I am concerned about this decline. Uh, these are small things that I wasn't doing before that I can start doing that, you know, can help reverse this decline or at the very least stabilize this decline. So we can put some other things in, into effect that can potentially reverse it. Well, and I think that we're 
to address the overwhelming feeling and, and, oh my gosh, how do I even start to address this problem? <laughs> we need to realize that actually these are almost compromises. And I know some people yeah. might shudder at me saying that because no, we actually need change, but the analogy or, or really case example that I'm going to use right now are uh, hybrid and electric cars. So when I was growing up, there were no hybrid or electric cars. And mm -hmm. suddenly the mentality shift went from, you know, we don't have to completely stop driving, even though I am not saying that we should drive all over the place all the time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm totally for cutting down our carbon footprint. However, the cars started shifting to being hybrid or electric. And so all of a sudden the market shifted and people mm -hmm. buying shifting. And so you have these cars on, on the road today. And so that's what I think really we should be looking at with bird-friendly products and bird-friendly lifestyles is that we're not saying you can't drink coffee. Oh my gosh, there mm -hmm. would be a, a huge uproar. <laughs> we're simply saying consider buying bird-friendly coffee, right? Um, mm -hmm. We're not saying that you can't have pets. We're simply saying let's be a little bit more responsible with how our pets interact with wildlife and behave outside. We're not saying that you can't have windows or buildings that are, you know, these huge glass structures. We're simply saying, let's make windows a little bit more visible for birds to avoid collisions, right? Mm. So, so that's, I think, where the compromise for me is coming from. And so if we can just do that on an individual and then massive scale, we'll actually have something to document and see a positive change for birds. I'll just uh, cheerlead on Jordan's point there and uh, say that I'm really struck by how sometimes the changes we can make are so trivial and we didn't even really think about them. And here's just an example I encountered the other day. It has to do with air travel. So everybody's sort of sort of doing this, you know, travel shaming right now. And I saw a fascinating rebuttal, which was about um, foregoing um, overnight and two-day shipping, uh, which is, a, I didn't, I had no idea how much uh, air travel is moving stuff across the country and across the world so that you can get your stuff really, really fast. And unless you just have to have that field guide tomorrow for some reason or, or the next day, simply waiting, you know, another four or five days uh, can make a big difference. And, and I, the, I'm, I'm citing that just because I had never, ever thought about that. When I see that my options for two-day delivery and one-week delivery cost exactly the same, I'm thinking, well, obviously I'll go with two-day mm -hmm. delivery. And I guess I had never made the connection that two-day delivery and one-week delivery actually have different environmental impacts. So I'm just tossing that out as an example okay. of an impact that I had not even thought about. And now that I'm aware of it, it's already, I think, influencing my, well, not very consumptive habits, but my consumptive habits all the same. It's so easy to get overwhelmed, as you say, uh, Jordan, by a report like this. But I, I think sort of, you know, my history with birding and, and knowing what I know about the history of bird populations, I, I do sort of feel more hopeful about this than maybe I should. You know, all you have to do look is looking at the, you know, the conservation movement in the U.S. and Canada and to see, you know, what can happen when people are making a concerted effort. You know, look at the populations of raptors following the DDT ban. Look at the populations of waterfowl. When we started, you know, the duck stamp started putting money away to um, expand these wildlife refuges to protect wetland ecosystems. I mean, there is stuff that can be done. Do, do you feel hopeful in the end? 
Yeah, thanks for uh, asking that question, Nate. I, I I do, and it's just as you said. I'm just sort of repeating your words here. It, it is easy to get discouraged, but I, I think I'm hopeful for three um, sort of basic reasons. They all have to do with proactive strategies. Um, the first is this idea that we can really um, tweak our lifestyles fairly, you know, you know, insignificantly on a sort of action by action basis and make a, a difference. The uh, the school kids that I that I work with from time to time and I are really um, Doing a lot to address the uh, the reduce and reuse part of the three R's. So you know that the recycle mm-hmm. part. They're sort of saying you don't even get that far. Let, let's think of ways that we can reduce and yeah, arguably reduce and reuse yeah, are the more and, important. And it's parts. so gratifying <laughs> to me that that's really what they're yeah. emphasizing. So I think it's wonderful that sort of folks born after about the year two thousand are really keen on looking at ways to um, to simplify their lives to really reduce and reuse. Uh, the second thing, and again, this is coming from the young people. I have to say, is um, really uh, impressed by this sort of. Uh, Really, uh, sort of sweeping awareness that so much of what we do needs to be ex- addressed in this sort of a uh, sort of global context, um, pan-cultural, transnational. That this idea that we really are one great big interconnected enterprise, uh, and I'm not just talking about people, but but communities, wild and, and, and artificial, all over the planet. That's that's really gratifying to me. Uh, and then finally, I'll just point out that um, we still can, in this day and age, in the United States and Canada and elsewhere, uh, accomplish an awful lot of good by engaging the political process. Uh, that means voting, most mm-hmm. of all, uh, but it also means being informed, uh, talking to people, and to some extent, getting involved in an activist. So uh, I think that if we tweak our lifestyles, reduce things a little bit, realize that we're really all in this thing together. We've been talking about the United States and Canada, but there is more to it than that, uh, and engage politics. Mm-hmm. I think that the uh, the future is one to be uh, cautiously optimistic about. I'm going to quote ABC President Mike Parr, and he said that- Former podcast a- guest. Correct. Correct. <laughs> <Sorry>. Yes. <laughs> um, so one of, one of his quotes in response to the study- is that it's a bit like hearing you have elevated cholesterol. You can choose to ignore it, but if you do, worse consequences likely await. And so I think that actually is a really great analogy because we don't want to hear it. It would be really easy to ignore it and Mm. keep wanting to eat all of the food that you want. Um, But ultimately, you know that you've got to take action. You've got to make things better. And Doing that doesn't mean that all of a sudden we can only eat vegetables, right? It means that all of a sudden we get to go and focus on all of these birds that we already love and get other people involved, right? So there are so many success stories already that we can focus on. Again, waterfowl is a prime example, but we also have, even in your own community, I'm sure you can think of things For ABC, we helped create the first bird-friendly sports arena, uh, the Bucks Arena. You know, that's huge. We have bird. And by the way, that was covered in Birding Magazine, I just wanted to say. Yes, it was. Um, And we have have legislation in the works that is uh, bird-oriented. And, and, you know, if we all speak up, like Ted was saying, we can hopefully get more bird protection. We have... Tons of, I mean, I could go on and on, but really I think it's finding that inspiration, being rejuvenated by birds, just holding on to that passion and sharing that with people. That's what gives me hope. I'm not going to get depressed basically because I hear this news. I'm going to say, oh my gosh, you know what? I always want to see a Blackburnian warbler every spring. I always want to see a red knot 
every spring. I want to see broad wings kettling every fall. And so really it's holding on to that and realizing that that's what keeps me going. And I know that there are all of these birders around the country and around the world that are going to make sure that that doesn't happen. We're not going to lose the birds. I think it's great. And um, I want to thank both Jordan and Ted. Jordan is the public relations director of public relations at the American Bird Conservancy. Ted is uh, he's our he's our birding magazine editor. Um, thank you both for coming on to discuss this. This was a, a really great conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks again for having us. Appreciate it. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and the best way to support this podcast, as well as the many free resources that we provide to the birding community in the U.S. and Canada is to join the ABA. We would certainly appreciate it if you did. You can get more information about joining the ABA at aba.org slash join or check out our e-memberships. They are just like regular memberships, except you receive all the publications in your email rather than in the mail. You can get information about that at aba.org slash e-member. A special shout out to Susan Fordyce of Mertztown, Pennsylvania, Joyce and Robert Wright of Staten Island, New York, Daniel Towheel of Newcastle, Washington, and Jason Schultz of Thurmont, Maryland, all of whom joined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He notes that all references to ABC in the interview this week are not to be confused with the American Broadcasting Corporation, though we are excited about the possibility of a season of The Bachelor that includes Birds of Paradise, Bowerbirds, and Mannequins. Technical production is by John Lowry. He notes that ABC is not to be confused with the Arab Banking Corporation and finds all attempts to conflate these two organizations extremely dubious. Yeah, man. I'm serious. Serious. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley. They note the potential confusion between the American Bird Conservancy and the 1930s Negro League Atlanta Black Crackers, but point out that a dying quail is of interest to both. You can find us at ABA.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. Our friends at the American Bird Conservancy were smart enough to grab the Twitter handle at ABCBirds so they wouldn't be mistaken for the American Board of Criminalistics, though they no doubt could have made a killing on the misunderstandings. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.